Good afternoon and welcome to the Cato Institute. My name is Tim Lynch and I'm the director of Cato's Project on Criminal Justice. Today we want to take a close look at a new intelligence and law enforcement tool that is called the Fusion Center. The basic idea of the center is to consolidate information that's gathered from a variety of sources, law enforcement sources, intelligence sources, open media reports, and put them together into a database and then to connect databases from around the country. Someone said the idea is to fuse bits of information together, so that's where they get the name from. And we've gathered together an excellent panel to address the pros and cons of this law enforcement tool. Um, before I introduce the first speaker, I want to take just a minute or two to lay something of a foundation for our discussion uh, today. But before I do that, I would ask those of you who came with cell phones, would you please take a moment and double check and make sure that they are turned off uh, as a courtesy to all of our speakers. <clears throat> Thank you. It seems to me that we should want uh, the police and intelligence agencies uh, to be on the lookout for trouble and to prevent violence uh, whenever possible. Uh, that's what we pay the police and the intelligence agencies uh, to do. Some surveillance is necessary for the work that they're engaged in. But history shows that domestic intelligence gathering very often morphs into spying, political man manipulation, and intimidation of perfectly lawful conduct. Dick Cheney gave his uh, famous address just a few weeks ago at the American Enterprise Institute, and during that speech he said something uh, which I thought was disturbing but didn't uh, get a lot of attention. He said, if a single clue goes by without notice, then there could be a catastrophe. Now, if you follow that logic, it seems that everybody, not just people suspected of wrongdoing, needs to be put into the central database so that they can be scrutinized. Um, our speakers can come at this subject in any manner they choose, but some of the key questions that I, I hope we'll uh, get to uh, include these three. Number one, first, do we need fusion centers, or are there more sensible ways to go about the task of counterterrorism? Number two, in some jurisdictions, for those who are convinced that they do not want to uh, adopt a fusion center, um, for whatever reason, uh, should the federal government then get involved and be subsidizing fusion centers? There are some law local jurisdictions that have set up fusion centers. There are others that have not. Should the federal government get involved and try to subsidize the creation of these uh, fusion centers for the jurisdictions that, that have decided that they're going to put their money into um, alternative uh, methods of law enforcement? For the jurisdictions that uh, have chosen to go ahead and create fusion centers, because they have found that they're going to be useful, how should they proceed? What information should be collected? Uh, who decides what information gets put into the database and who decides, well, this information should be discarded? And for instances in which false information has been put into the database on an ordinary citizen, what opportunities, what procedures are going to be in place so that you can go and get that correction uh, made about the information that's there uh, about yourself? Maybe you've been denied a job or your business involves contracting with the federal government. Maybe these jobs are being denied, contracts are being denied because of information that's in this database, information that's misleading or incorrect. What procedures are going to be in place so that you can go uh, and, and get this stuff corrected? I know that there are many other questions, but I just wanted to put those three on the table. Okay, let's turn now to our panelists and get their thoughts on this subject. 
Our first speaker today has been an assistant United States attorney in Maryland since 1986. Since the 9-11 attacks, he has been serving as the national security chief in the Maryland district. And in that capacity, he supervises other federal prosecutors who investigate and prosecute national security cases. He also oversees a network of more than 200 public and private organizations as the coordinator of the Anti-Terrorism uh, Advisory Council of Maryland. He has received several awards for his work over the years, and in, as a matter of fact, he, he uh, was given an award by the Attorney General for creating one of the very first fusion centers in the United States over in Maryland. So would you please welcome Mr. Harvey Eisenberg. Thank you, Tim. And I want to thank the Cato Institute and my friend uh, who has debated with me a while ago, uh, Mike German from the ACLU and uh, Bruce Fine, who I just met in the uh, first time I've ever been in a green room. It wasn't green, though. Uh, this is an important dialogue, as Tim has set forth, and I'm pleased to represent at least one side of the discussion or the argument in favor of uh, fusion centers. And in, let me be specific and be clear at the outset. I'm going to discuss in any amount of detail that's necessary the Maryland Coordination and Analysis Center, MCAC as it's called, because that's Maryland's fusion center, and that's something that I've been intimately involved with since early 2002 when we first thought about doing something. We didn't have the term fusion center, but that's what it's become. I cannot legitimately address other fusion centers or other operations around the United States. I can discuss and am accountable for what MCAC has done and what it probably, hopefully it'll last after today, will do. Uh, I'm a career federal prosecutor. I represent no political interest. The only interest I have is the Constitution of the United States and the laws enacted duly thereunder, and effectively enforcing them through any means that are lawfully available to us. Uh, now, with that self-serving statement out of the way, but I do believe it. I shouldn't make fun of it, but it's uh, something I think that I need to say almost any time I stand up because some people tend to think uh, maybe I was a Republican under the Republican administration because I worked there, and now I'm a Democrat, and a Democrat, I'm not a political appointee. So I'm free to speak my mind, but I do not speak for the Justice Department. I will address what Maryland has done and what I have done in my official capacity. Background on Maryland. Uh, after September 11th, specifically six days after September 11th, Attorney General Ashcroft sent an email message to every United States attorney, the 93 United States attorneys in the country, in those judicial districts. Maryland is one judicial district, so the U.S. attorney received the same email that the other 92 did. And among the responsibilities given to the U.S. attorneys in the effort to prevent what we were sure at the time was going to be a subsequent attack is to provide or find an experienced prosecutor, career prosecutor, to set up an anti-terrorism advisory council. And one of the main things that prosecutor needed to do, since everybody that's looked at the issue, the 9-11 Commission, Congress, oversight committees, two administrations, outside critics, is better share information. And not just with law enforcement, with everybody that has a need to know it, to better protect our society our way of life, our government. Well, 
I'll be honest with you, I'd been a prosecutor for a lot of years and had a lot of awards, but I had no idea how to prevent crime because that's what we were asked to do. Don't let us get attacked again. Don't let more people, innocent people, die. And share information to do that. Well, how do you do that? I could barely email at the time. I barely can email now, although I see some of my friends from uh, MCAX management saying there they'd rather me not email at all. Uh, we eventually set up what's now called the Fusion Center, MCAC, Maryland Coordination Analysis Center, as a way to systemically share information, to receive it, to analyze it, to weed out the bad stuff in an intelligent, methodical way by professionals who are trained, and get it out to the private sector, to the health community, to law enforcement, whoever needs it, obeying restrictions on classifications because that's the law. Okay, that's the goal. Is it perfect? By no means. It's a human endeavor built at a time of stress with no guidelines at the time especially. No one said build a fusion center. But the Anti-Terrorism Advisory Council's executive committee, which governs our our fusion center, member uh, 16 chief executives from law enforcement, non-law enforcement, state, federal, and local officials. It's a mix, as the ATAC, the Anti-Terrorism Advisory Council, is supposed to be. They're responsible and they govern it. Structure of the uh, MCAC is traditional law enforcement task force. That's my experience. I thought that would be the best way to go, and that's what the exec committee decided. We have a federal, a state, and a local representative in the three main management positions. At the time, right now, we have a lieutenant colonel who's retired from the Maryland State Police, who is the executive director. We have a deputy director from the Maryland State Police. We have a watch commander, who is the watch section commander, rather, who is an assistant director from the Anne Arundel County, Maryland Police Department, provided by his chief. And we have an FBI supervisory special agent who oversees the analysis section. The facility is paid for, the rent, by the FBI, but they do not run it. They participate, and they are va- they're valued members, and the MCAC obviously services the Joint Terrorism Task Force of the FBI in a great way. But that's the setup. It's not run by a federal or state or local entity. I guess you could say, since I chair the ATAC's executive committee, it's more federal than not. But it really doesn't matter at the end of the day. Information comes from every place, public, private citizens, public entities, federal, state, and local. It needs to get out. So that's the operation. There are 25 federal, state, and local agencies in Maryland that have detailed agents or health officials or other people to the center, firefighters, to be in the Fusion Center. Fusion is multi-agency, multi-discipline, but also multi-level of government. So federal, state, and local, but also more than law enforcement. It's got to be. That's the nature of the world. That's the realistic view of the world, in our view, anyway. The civil liberties issue, that is a very, very valid issue, and Maryland has looked at this from day one and has just completed every one of their almost 80-member staff has just received the first DHS, Office of Civil Liberties, Privacy Protection Training, and they will be annually recertified by that office. We have a Constitutional Protections Advisory Board that was established by the Executive Committee. I'm not sure the exact time frame. I'm saying about two, maybe longer years ago. A retired federal judge chairs that three-member body, and 
the former statewide public defender in Maryland, now a law professor, is on that body, and a former assistant U.S. attorney, federal prosecutor, who is a prominent defense attorney, is the third member of that board. They are there, and they have reviewed all of the internal protocols. They are there if there is a citizen or other complaint to review that, to give guidance to the executive committee, first to me and then to the executive committee. And that is something that looks somebody or somebody that looks over my shoulder in particular because I guess my responsibility is also as a watchdog, and I do operate more in that capacity along with the policy end. But we needed some independent group of people to say, this is not right. You made a mistake. You need to do training here, whatever. They've been in there for two, maybe three years. So it's not as if we've ignored that issue. In fact, we're quite cognizant of the issue. There are a lot of issues that come up that are not that easy. And a lot of times, from what I've heard, they get taken out of context. So be it. That's the way of the world. I have one last thing I'd like to say, with all due respect to Tim and to the sponsors, I would not label this as uh, domestic spying or sensible surveillance. I think that's a false dichotomy, at least as to Maryland. The MCAC does no sensible or lack of sensible or not sensible surveillance. It's there predominantly to receive information, to vet it, to analyze it, and to get it out, if appropriate, under the rule of law. It's not there to surveil anyone. It will maintain that stance as long as I'm involved in it, and I don't see anybody ever asking at MCAC or anyplace else to be anything differently. So I don't know that it's, there's no domestic spying and there's no sensible or not-so-sensible surveillance at MCAC. Um, so my final words, probably a not very good thing to do to attack your, criticize rather, uh, your sponsor, but I think it's uh, something that I think better sets the table for a, a, a more reasonable discussion about the issues, at least in, in my view. So once again, thank you, Tim, Mike, and Bruce. Thank you, ladies and gentlemen. Okay, our next speaker is a policy analyst with the American Civil Liberties Union, where his responsibility is to develop uh, policy positions uh, concerning domestic surveillance uh, and other law enforcement uh, methods and techniques. He has a very interesting background in that in addition to the law degree that he brings to his job, he also brings 16 years of uh, experience as a federal law enforcement agent to his job. For many years, he served as an undercover agent with the FBI, where his job was to infiltrate uh, domestic terror organizations such as neo-Nazi hate groups. In 2007, he wrote a book about his undercover experience and his recommendations uh, for counterterrorism methods for democratic societies. That book is entitled uh, Thinking Like a Terrorist. Would you please welcome Michael German? Thank you very much. Thank you, Tim. And uh, thanks to the Cato Institute for inviting me to discuss this issue um, and and to Harvey for coming out, um, even though he had a late night uh, working. Uh, I didn't mention that. Yeah. Um, he was involved in the Holocaust shooting investigation from yesterday, so we appreciate him being able to join us today. So. And to Bruce Fine, of course. Um, the, the ACLU got involved with uh, looking at the Fusion Center issue um, in 2007 uh, when there were pieces of legislation moving through that were uh, providing funding from DHS for these Fusion Centers. And I was only uh, two years out of law enforcement 
and had never heard of a fusion center. And I thought, oh, this is kind of strange that uh, there's this new thing that's being built, and even somebody who, who's been working in this field doesn't know what this is. So we put together a report, and the first thing we found um, when we started investigating it is that that no two fusion centers are alike. Uh, they're they're thing, uh, an information-sharing system that has sort of developed organically around the country. Uh, my belief is it was a failure of the Joint Terrorism Task Forces to adequately get information that the state and locals could use, so they started developing their own. Again, no two fusion centers are alike. The Harvey's Fusion Center was actually developed federal at the federal level. Um, so the way we address the report is, is to basically do an overview and to try to identify issues that we saw uh, that, that should have been of concern to uh, policymakers as they went forward on this. And, and the, we, we identified five issues that, again, don't necessarily apply to every fusion center but should be reviewed in looking at any particular fusion center. And the first was ambiguous lines of authority. Because you have federal, state, and local officials involved in these activities, it's sometimes hard to determine, as Harvey said, who is in charge. And, you know, where he says running, who's running it at the end of the day doesn't matter as far as getting the information out to those who need it. It does matter when you're trying to find accountability for violations of somebody's civil rights. And when somebody whose rights are violated goes back and it's ambiguous who is actually in charge or made the decision that impacted them, that's a huge problem um, for accountability. Uh, so we identified that as one of the issues. Uh, the second was participation of the military. Uh, there are several fusion centers, again, not all. In fact, it, it's a relatively small number, uh, but there are several fusion centers that include military personnel. Uh, actually, a number of them include National Guard under their uh, Title X state status, uh, which is fine under posse comitatus. Uh, what's not fine is that some of them include actual active-duty military, which are generally prohibited from involvement in, in uh, domestic law enforcement. So the fact that they're there, again, without proper guidelines, oversight, and accountability uh, to make sure that they're actually staying within some reasonable uh, activities. Um, the third issue is private sector participation. Many of these fusion centers actually have private entities working inside what is essentially a law enforcement operation. And that's something that we have great concern about, both because information from the private sector can improperly uh, move to government databases without the proper legal process that, again, would provide that accountability, but also the opposite that information would bleed out from the law enforcement activities to these private entities, and then private harm could determine. I mean, you could imagine who might be involved in a, in a particular fusion center. The idea is to bring in uh, actors who, who are involved in critical infrastructure. So you might imagine maybe a company that, that uh, provides a lot of jobs in the area, that they would now see that law enforcement is suspecting a particular individual, and lo and behold, that person works for my company. Obviously, I wouldn't want them to continue working for my company if law enforcement suspects them of being involved in terrorism. So I would find some way to fire that person and get them out of my facilities and away from my employees. Without any due process, it may turn out that the investigation finds nothing, that this person who was suspected actually was not involved in terrorism, but that private harm could already happen. Um, and, and so that, that's a problem that we identified. Uh, the th fourth problem is data mining. 
Um, part of what appears to be happening at some of these fusion centers is the massive collection of data for data mining purposes. And, uh, you know, just the, the type of harm that can come from that when the government is using profiles to identify who to investigate rather than focusing on actual bad behavior uh, is apparent. What's also apparent now, thankfully because of a, a National Academy of Sciences report that came out uh, last fall, is the data mining actually is not an effective technique for determining uh, possible terrorists. Uh, this study was published in November. It was a study funded by DHS uh, to determine whether uh, data mining could be used effectively. And the results of this uh, study that incorporated a lot of uh, computer scientists and, and counterterrorism officials was that it would not, that what it would do is falsely identify a number of people who were not terrorists, and that would misdirect law enforcement resources and cause violations of unnecessary violations of privacy and civil liberties, and it was not a productive model to go forward with. So now we've created this system that enables this massive collection without really an effective method of dealing with the information once the government has it, and whether that's a useful uh, use of our resources is, is the uh, other question. And, and the final problem is the secrecy that is involved uh, in, in these activities that we don't actually know. And, you know, part of, I think, why, why this dialogue is so important, and I thank Cato for having this, is so that we can start to get some understanding. And, and, and that's why I appreciate Harvey coming out to, to answer questions and to sort of get to the bottom of what's actually happening at these fusion centers. Um, to get to Tim's questions, do we need fusion centers? Certainly the ACLU has no problems with law enforcement agencies effectively sharing lawfully collected criminal intelligence information with other law enforcement agencies. You know, we all want, you know, none of us want a bad guy to get away with, with his criminality simply because law enforcement agencies are ineffective and inefficient at, at getting information that might help uh, prevent crime from one institution to another. The problem with fusion centers is it's unclear, A, who is collecting the information. Uh, in our fusion center report, we talk about, um, we, we have a reference to uh, a, an official from Boeing who testified up on the Hill that they wanted to participate in fusion centers and expected to be involved in every aspect of the intelligence process, collection, analysis, and dissemination. So here a private company is asserting that they have some role in collecting information about Americans, sharing it with law enforcement and disseminating it to others, which we think is extremely dangerous uh, for, for all the reasons that, that we laid out with the, uh, in the discussion of the private sector participation. Um, also, what information is being collected and then who it's being shared with. If it's not being shared with law enforcement but is, in fact, being shared with other private companies, with the military, uh, we would have a concern about that. Um, Tim's second question, uh, should the federal government subsidize fusion centers where they're not wanted? And, you know, it's an interesting question because it turns out there are some states where it's not necessarily wanted. We quote in, in one of our reports, there's two on our website. It's www.aclu.org slash fusion. Uh, in one of them, we quote an Idaho official where there was not a fusion center who said, you know, I guess if the federal government tells us we have to have one, we will. Well, again, the federal government's position is these are state and local centers that the federal government isn't responsible for, but here's the state official saying that we'll only get one if the federal government tells us we have to. So 
it's again unclear who's actually in charge of these things. Um, so the issue of whether the federal government's subsidy of these centers uh, is, is something that we want, I think, is very important because it, right, well, last year the, the Congressional Research Service said that 80 percent of the funding for fusion centers still was coming from state and local governments. Only 20 percent was coming from the federal government. But again, 30 percent of the fusion centers were actually in federal workspace. So if you're a state entity that can't get into your office without the federal government say so, that's, again, confusing as to who's really in charge. Um, but, but in, you know, in that case, it was still showing that the, the state and locals were, were primarily financially responsible for these centers. Well, that is coming to an end, and a lot of the push right now from the state and locals is that, hey, DHS, Department of Homeland Security, if you want these fusion centers, you're going to have to provide sustainability funding because the states can't can't carry that load. So the federal government is at being asked to take a bigger role in making sure these things stay operative. And of course, the federal government benefits from them, not just that each particular fusion center is providing information, but that there's a networking between them. And that's very important when you talk about things like the military participation, because you could have a center that says, hey, look at us, aren't we good because we don't have any military participation. But if I'm networked with a fusion center that does... And they, and they have a military participant in their fusion center, I can get the benefit of whatever access that gives them to military information, and they can benefit from getting my information to their military associates. So, you know, it's no longer just what one fu- whether one fusion center obeys the rules, but whether any fusion center is violating the rules, the, the system benefits, and the federal government, through the information-sharing environment, will be where all this information is ultimately uploaded to the Federal Intelligence Agency. And, and I should say uploaded in, in a, uh, not in a, in a literal sense. Um, there isn't one big database. It's, again, just this network of databases. But, you know, from the way that the ACLU looks at it, you know, we can say we're four separate databases, but if I have instant access to both provide information to and receive information from the other three databases, you know, in reality, there's no difference that, that this is all essentially one data set that I have access to. Um, so our belief is that if the federal government is going to get involved to where they are providing the sustainability funding, they then have a responsibility to make sure that the fusion centers are ba- obeying all laws, not just federal laws. You know, in some states and localities, there are actually better laws than the federal government protecting privacy and civil liberties for state residents. And the federal government, again, if it's the one that's creating this network and keeping it alive, it's responsible for making sure that the laws are followed so that that one outlier fusion center that's violating rights can't continue to exist uh, without repercussions. Um, And the third question is how to proceed. Who decides what to collect, who decides what is kept, and who is responsible for accuracy? And that, again, is is a huge problem where there is a lack of accountability in who's in charge of these fusion centers. And if we're going to have this network, there has to be a, a policeman involved um, because there are violations. And, and we actually, in our reports and, and in our, our coverage uh, on our website, we, we cover some of those. There have been a number of leaked fusion center reports. Um, in Maryland, there was a, a Maryland State Police investigation that the ACLU uncovered that targeted 53 individuals from 20 
public advocacy organizations for investigation, including undercover investigations that lasted more than a year, uh, collecting information about the act- First Amendment protected activities of protest groups. No criminal uh, nexus involved in that, and you can read the files that we received to see that the people involved were were not involved in any criminality, and there was not even any suspicion that they were, which is where we have a problem, where's this suspicionless collection. And that was run by the Maryland State Police, not through the Fusion Center, as Harvey said. But if the Fusion Center is existing, and, and the Maryland State Police are a participant in the Fusion Center, and also in the Joint Terrorism Task Force in Maryland, so a participant in both of these information-sharing programs is engaged in this lengthy terrorism-related investigation, actually uploading information to federal databases. They uploaded it to a uh, federal drug database that, that is also used to ha- at that time to house terrorism-related information. And yet there was no policeman involved in these sharing systems to say, hey, wait a minute, your collection of that in- information is, is inappropriate and y- your dissemination of that information to federal databases is inappropriate to have stopped that information before years later when the ACLU uncovers it through a Freedom of Information Act request. So that's really our concern is that there has to be some sort of guidance over these centers so that they can share the the information they appropriately collect and analyze uh, for law enforcement purposes, but not with entities that they shouldn't and not collecting information that they shouldn't. So I want to leave plenty of time for questions. So I'll turn that over to Bruce. (laughs) Or back to Tim. Thank you. Our third speaker today has been a prominent fixture on the American legal scene for more than 25 years. He served in several positions in the Justice Department during the Reagan administration, including stints at the Office of Legal Policy and later as general counsel at the FCC. He developed his expertise in constitutional law and the history of the Supreme Court, and it's because of that expertise that he is widely quoted in the newspapers. He's a frequent guest on uh, TV news programs, and he's also called, called upon regularly to uh, give testimony uh, before the Congress. He just testified in April before a House subcommittee on the fusion centers. He's also a, a prolific writer in both the popular press and in the scholarly law journals, and his most recent book is entitled Constitutional Peril, The Life and Death Struggle of Our Constitution and Democracy. Please welcome Bruce Fine. Thank you, Tim, and uh, thank you for hosting this particularly important session. I want to make some general observations before I get into some details about the fusion centers that I think set the context of how we should think about this post-9-11 phenomenon uh, that was at least touted as simply sharing information and is otherwise rather innocuous. It is the history of governments, especially after crises, to inflate danger and quickly have investigations for law enforcement turn into investigations of dissidents. Um, I remember after Pearl Harbor, uh, there was Fusion Center out on the West Coast, and they collected all sorts of information how the Japanese-Americans had undiluted racial strains that tied them to Emperor Hirohito. And based upon that Fusion collection of information, five months after Pearl Harbor, although there had not been a single instance of Japanese-American sabotage, we had the concentration camps. We had the concentration camps without a single iota of any criminal activity. But, hey, this is intelligence collection, and we're trying to prevent 
any other Pearl Harbor. And people then, well, there's going to be another Pearl Harbor. We have to stick those Japanese Americans in concentration camps. They're signaling submarines. They're signaling pirates to drop bombs. And of course, all of that was wrong. And it took the 1988 Civil Liberties Act to finally rectify the wrong, pronounce it a travesty of the Constitution, and pay $20,000 to each of the victims. Now, in more current times, you may recall the Vietnam War era. And there was called the Army Spying Program that Senator Sam Irvin held hearings about. The Army was initially tasked to gather intelligence on those who might attack military installations. But it soon ended up that they were infiltrating every single anti-war movement. So that the number that was spied on for political reasons dwarfed the number that had any conceivable action that could be brigaded with any criminal activity. And that is the nature of government collection of intelligence. It's said that to a hammer, everything looks like a nail. To a spy, everything looks like a saboteur. And let me give you one example of that. And I think we need to give real life and blood examples to give a sense of what are the human impulses that lead to these abuses. In 1969, uh, President Nixon, Henry Kissinger, and others had decided on secret bombing of Cambodia. They didn't want to embarrass Prince Sihanouk, and so they were going to send our bombs into Cambodia. They were trying to get North Vietnamese sanctuaries there, and our pilots were instructed to file false reports as to where they're actually delivering their munitions. And there was a leak to the press, Henry Beecher of the New York Times. That was my counterpart, I suppose, of our terrorism uh, surveillance program, the TSP, that leaked to the New York Times. And he published the fact that there was this bombing in Cambodia in violation of what at least the public policy of the United States was. So in the aftermath of that uh, disclosure, President Nixon and Henry Kissinger goes to J. Edgar Hoover and they get a list of people who are going to find out who that scoundrel was who leaked this information. They identified 17. These were people on the National Security Council staff. It included people like Secretary of Defense Melvin Laird and others. The FBI then puts wiretaps. They surveil these individuals, 17, for over two and a half years. They come back with a report and say, we haven't been able to find anything that suggests any of our targets is the culprit. We gathered information on their sex lives, their credit lives, their girlfriends, their vacation plans, or whatever. And Henry Kissinger looks at the report and he responds... We must continue to surveil them so we give them the opportunity to establish a pattern of innocence. So then it continued, right? That is the mentality here. We are all guilty until you establish your innocence. Now, if a fusion center was nothing more than gathering information that was collected because it bore a nexus to a crime, we might as well just hire Google and say, hey, just get your databases and have a Google that works more efficiently with keywords, the real menace of the fusion centers is they arose when? Right after 9-11. Well, did anyone think that it was bad to share information prior to 9-11? Of course not. We know that this was calculated to generate a fear. We're going to catch the next Osama bin Laden out on the street. And we're going to try to get a collection of information that would enable us to have a profile. That's why you have data mining that says, oh, this one looks like a terrorist. And, of course, with the money there, the police says, all right, this is what our job is to collect information. No one gets rewarded in law enforcement for not collecting information. Um, And you ask, well, what are the results of the fusion centers? Notice that there hasn't been a citation to a single terrorist incident that has been blocked because of the collection of this information, this sharing. And that was also true, and I testified at the fusion centers throughout the nation. Not even one 
Now consider that effectiveness when you, can con- when, you, uh, when you examine what might be alternate uses of law enforcement that has to be limited. Uh, annually, there's something like 17 to 20,000 murders in the United States annually. And you know what the clearance rate is? 61%. Clearance rate means that an arrest is made, not a conviction, an arrest is made for those homicides. 39%, there's not even an arrest made. So those are crimes that have actually commit, been committed that we could be utilizing these resources for, especially when the return on investment looks like it's close to zero. A little bit better than Bernie Madoff, but not a whole lot, right? A little bit better. So why are we doing this? Where's the person? He's going to stand up and he's going to tell you, these are the earmarks that we look for in these fusion centers. And we see this piece of information. We know that's an earmark of a terrorist. He can't say that because we don't know. If you asked, what was the earmark? Why didn't we take this fellow who's over at the Holocaust Museum committing the murder the next day? The fact is that we don't have that knowledge. We don't want necessarily to have every conceivable knowledge about every individual, including their genetic makeup, because that would be a police state. You need to take some risks to have a free society. That is essential. That is essential. You can have the Stasi and you can go to some countries that are communists and tyrannies. They know everything about everybody. And they have no freedom whatsoever. None whatsoever. Now, what, is it, what do we need these fusion centers for when they're clearly intended to share information that's not criminal justice related? And if you look at the collection methods, and I'm not blaming Maryland because that's just a small segment here, and he's just talking about sharing, not the collection, but it's the collection side that matters, right? Who, we're all comfortable with the idea one jurisdiction shares information now that this is a suspected murder, and we have XYZ. That's not what this is about. We need to be clear why this originated, when it originated, and what these people are about. Now, we do not have full information about all the kinds of reports that are coming out of the fusion centers because they're not subject to the Freedom of Information Act. They are, this is not government in the sunshine. But when we have leak reports, what do we discover? Well, there's one report uh, that was written by in North Texas Fusion Center that was a subject in part of the hearing up in the House uh, Subcommittee on Terrorism. And it writes, amongst other things, my gosh, radical Islam is taking control of the country. We need to be worried. The U.S. Treasury Department had a session on Islamic banking, and there's one person in Houston who has a mortgage that's based on Islamic banking. Wow, the country is falling apart. And there's oftentimes laws that make accommodation to Islam in work hours and holidays. And these people, they're using things like blogging, and rapster music to promote their ideas. All things that are the heart of the First Amendment. What's suspicious about that? That's the mentality that's in there. And it makes people think we need to be suspicious of everybody out there that doesn't look like us. And that's exactly what creates the atmospheres, the dynamics that lead to Guantanamo Bay, torture, doesn't matter. If we can't pronounce these people's names, Hamdan, Korematsu, Hirabayashi, hey, it's not us. That's what we have to fight against. That's what we need to fight against. There needs to be a standard out there that says, yeah, you can, you can have fusion centers to share information collected with a legitimate criminal justice standard. And you need these to be subject to the sunshine. None of this stuff outside of Freedom of Information Act. Louis Brandeis had it a century ago. Sunshine is the best disinfectant. Sunshine is the best disinfectant. And moreover, you have to have some real sanctions. We have these oversight boards. Have you ever heard of anyone since 9-11 who's been sanctioned, got a demerit for spying too much? None. 
Take, for example, even when we, we, we learned about some of the, the abuses under the Patriot Act of issuing some of these warrantless summons without any backup that we need this for a terrorist investigation, the FBI. Thousands of violations. Anybody get sanctioned for it? What does that signal send to the bureaucracy? Collect anything you want. You will not be sanctioned if you collect too much. But if you don't collect it all and something's another 9-11, oh, then you'll be sent to the guillotine. And we need to have law enforcement that says, no, we simply don't want to know everything in the world. That's the end of freedom. All of this information can be, it will be abused for political purposes. That's what happened in the collection about communist affiliations in the McCarthy era. And Michael was saying, who knows? An employer gets, oh, this one's under investigation by a fusion center. Fire him. Why take a risk? That's what we know human nature is about. The employers out there, they don't want to take risks at all. And we need to get away. It's in my judgment, and I'm writing this sequel book on the empire mentality. You'll notice that it was said that these 9-11, these post-9-11 fusion centers were designed to make certain never again could be there a repeat of a terrorist incident. He said everyone thought there was going to be another terrorist incident. And now it's agreed. 9-11 was an abomination. It's crime as far as I'm concerned. It is crime. But there's one thing that's more important than preventing another terrorist incident. That's protecting the Constitution of the United States and what the United States is about. Because a lot of this imagines is not so much what their activity tells about them. It's how we behave and what it says about us as a free society. We are willing to take risks, even that Holocaust, that tragedy over there, it's regrettable, but we are a free country. We are a free people. We don't want the police turning into a Stasi state. The right to be left alone, Louis Brandeis said, is the most cherished right of civilized people. This was at the time we began to do wiretapping and electronic surveillance to stop the alcohol bootlegging during the Prohibition era. The right to be left alone. And remember this. That when we think about our own Declaration of Independence, and it says, what is the purpose of government? It says, we're all born with unalienable rights to life, liberty, and pursuit of happiness. And the purpose of government is not to build empires. It's to secure those rights. A revolutionary idea, we think about our entity as protecting individual rights first. The government authority comes later, secondary. Now, that doesn't mean that we have crimes that we leave uninvestigated. Of course not. But it means that's the beginning of the thought process. After 9-11, all of this is shifted. Gather any amount of information you want. Everything has to be subordinated to national security concerns. The gist of these memos out of the Justice Department was what? There was only one provision of the Constitution remaining after 9-11, commander-in-chief. Nothing else applied. Now, we are told that, well, we have these civil liberties boards that are there to scrutinize. The collection to make certain there are no First Amendment or other violations. Well, uh, we know what the government officials were saying that were legal during Bush Cheney. Mr. Cheney still today says everything we did was constitutional. Everything was legal. Supreme Court got it wrong when they said habeas corpus couldn't be suspended at Guantanamo Bay. So if that kind of, and Cheney unfortunately is not the only government official who was saying those sorts of things. Read those legal memos. And you sort of scratch your head. I used to be in office of legal counsel when Nixon was there, tried successfully to get him impeached by the Judiciary Committee. And uh, the office of legal counsel I worked in had a different constitution than these guys who believed that everything is subordinate to national security. No law 
could limit the president when he said, I need to torture, I need to do extraordinary rendition, I need to suspend habeas corpus because I'm fighting terrorism, and that's the end of the game. No second guessing whatsoever, no judicial review whatsoever. That was the end of the matter. That's why we cannot accept this idea, well, we'll just be comfortable and comforted by the fact we have the Civil Liberties Review Board. Bush had his Civil Liberties Review Board, too, over the Patriot Act. And it was worthless, like an ink blot there on the scene, even though he had Lanny Davis and some Democrats there as well. They didn't have access to any of the information. So my, my proposition is, if you want, why call them fusion centers? If we just want to increase the efficiency with which criminal justice information that targets crimes can be shared, I'm all in favor of that. That's not what fusion centers are about. Timing is everything and speaks volumes as to why they were created. Um, and, they say, and the beginning point in my judgment is we need to know exactly what these fusion centers are doing. Why do we have to depend upon leaks to the New York Times or other newspapers to find out how these people are using government money to spy on First Amendment activity? Let me say a last word about the training sessions that are given. Say, well, you're a certified, trained uh, a law enforcement official in the First Amendment. The First Amendment could be studied, the case law, for years. These are highly refined decisions. For example, what is incitement to crime that's not protected from simply exhortation or do it designed to create a situation of unrest or anger, which is protected? You know, Brandenburgen versus Ohio or whatever. You're going to tell me these issues that have puzzled people who've studied the matter for 10 years, you have you do four weeks training. Okay, now they know what the First Amendment means. I mean, that's ludicrous. It'd be like me taking one week in high energy physics and say, now I know what C squared. No. And this is important stuff because these are the people out on the beat gathering that information. They're the ones that are making the decision to collect that information to find out whether it was First Amendment protected or not. And lastly, I'll just give you one example. Um, Michael mentioned the Maryland State Police. Some of the targets, oh, these people were protesting against the death penalty. Boy, that really shows that they might be terrorists. Where's the criminal activity in that? I mean, this is the zenith of how the political process should be working. So this is not a close case. When the democratic process and freedom of association is mistaken for suspicious activity, we're not very far from the Stasi. Thank you. Okay, before we take your questions, I want to give uh, Harvey Eisenberg just a few minutes to respond to anything that's been said. Is the green mean we're muted, or is the green mean we're on? Green light. Does that mean we're on? Yeah. Okay. Uh, I'll warn you, as I've warned uh, many a jury uh, when I get a stand-up to give rebuttal. Uh, what you just saw is sort of set up by Tim as a mini-trial, I guess, summation by the prosecution, at least in federal court, uh, summation by defense counsel, as many as there are, and uh, in this case, two, um, and then rebuttal. So I'll warn you that rebuttal by its very nature, since I had no idea, well, yeah, I knew what Mike was going to say. We've been there before. Uh, it's somewhat disjointed, so I apologize in advance for that, but I guess you can understand uh, the context. Um, as a general statement, let me just say with regard to my friend uh, on my left, interestingly, uh, Mr. Fine, <laughs> Uh, his view of the world and his reality bears no resemble, resemblance whatsoever to my day-to-day -day life, certainly since September 11th, and certainly in my time as a federal prosecutor. 
and I will stand behind that statement uh, till the day I die. Uh, I am a constitutional scholar as well. I enforce the law within the Constitution, always have and always will. I know where the lines are drawn. I know how to counsel people to obey the law. And by the way, Mike's heard this story, but I'll bore Mike one more time, and there's a few people in this room from Maryland that have heard this. On September 11th, I was just a prosecutor looking to prosecute a commercial robbery, series of trials, and I got a call from an FBI agent telling me about the towers going down. I dropped my stuff, and I went over to the FBI, and I volunteered. From that moment on, I was an expert in national security. And then we started with this uh, Anti-Terrorism Advisory Council, and I learned a lot. I know Mr. Fine doesn't believe it, but I did at the time, and I bet you you did too. Forget about the politics, and I'm not going to discuss politics here because I'm no, God, you all know by now I'm no politician. The reality of September 11th and the aftermath was I was convinced, fool that I am, that there was going to be a follow-on attack. I wasn't willing as a government official or as a citizen to take the chance. I was not trying to enslave all of you and the rest of my family and society by having that opinion. And I dare say neither were you. You can get kind of hung up in the books and forget about the reality. And by that statement, I'm not trying to scare you to say, gee, Eisenberg's a great guy. September 11th, we were there frantically looking. And soon after September 11th, we knew at the Joint Terrorism Task Force, the FBI, that Maryland was, had housed at least five of the 19 mass murderers, the hijackers, so-called. Mass murderers is a better, apt, more apt expression of what they did. And I remember that night, or maybe it was the morning, there were no windows in the room, asking a group of people for information because in the aftermath of September 11th, I issued over 450 grand jury subpoenas. You don't know this, but that's a lot of grand jury subpoenas for any prosecutor in any event. It may be a record, it may not, I'm not sure. I don't care. I asked questions in order to get another grand jury subpoena out. It was probably regarding the locations of the motels in the Laurel College Park area of Maryland. We needed more information for other people that might be there. We needed evidence. Intelligence, if you will, but evidence. I was turned down for that information because, and remember, everybody believed we're about to get hit again, because the law did not allow, to tell, allow them to tell me that information. It was on the other side of the wall the wall that came down with the much maligned Patriot Act. Until the president at the time gave immunity, essentially, and said the wall comes down, give the information to prosecutors so they can do their jobs with the agents, they were not willing to give me and break the law, that information, and they believed we were going to get attacked. Well, if that doesn't say a whole hell of a lot about the professionalism of law enforcement community that I deal with and my reality, I don't know what does. As regarding the collection and the maintenance of information at the Fusion Center and the training, which has been belittled somewhat by my colleague, 28 CFR, Code of Federal Regulation, controls what may be maintained, collected and maintained at Fusion Centers and how long it can be maintained. Our Fusion Center adheres to that and was trained in it by, well, besides myself, others at DHS and other places. It's not like we just thought this up and just gone willy-nilly out to enslave the Japanese in World War II. If I sound like I resent the analogy, it's only because I do. 
and I also resent the analogy of the Stasi. I don't think that Harvey Eisenberg, emphasis on Eisenberg, will ever become a part of a Gestapo or a Stasi or anything else of that nature. God help me. Whatever God you pray to. Crimes can be prosecuted after the fact, it's often said. The prevent function is just not constitutionally permissible. While I recommend you to look at yesterday's guilty finding in the Northern District of Georgia, Atlanta, of someone who was planning to commit terrorist acts. In fact, surveilled many places here in the Washington, D.C. area and then transmitted that information to a known terrorist overseas, proven in a court of law, federal court of law. Were we to wait until those surveilled locations were bombed or a plan was in place? How long do we wait? We have a statute. It's employed. It's never been ruled unconstitutional. Material support of terrorism. We prevented a terrorist act. Or we frustrated and disrupted. And there are any number of other cases. Fort Dix. The Virginia Jihad case in the Eastern District of Virginia and also in Maryland. I can name a lot of them. But it can be done. It's constitutional. No one can argue reasonably and legitimately that it's not. So there is an imbalance in the Constitution and the enforcement of law as it needs to be in this era. And that's not meant to scare anybody. It's just a reality. Okay, thank you. We want to open up the discussion now and uh, take your questions. I do have uh, three requests. When I call on you, please wait for our microphone to arrive so that everybody can hear your question. Please identify yourself and any affiliation you may have, and please keep your questions brief so that we can get to as many people as possible. Yes. Thank you. Mr. Eisenberg, I'm Dane von Breikenrucker. I'm president of the United States Bill of Rights Foundation. Good afternoon, Let me ask sir. you this. I'm trying to, if you could just give us a scenario of what would be the minimum things that I would have to do to catch your attention, that you would say, let's go check out that Bill of Rights Foundation. Let's, uh, let's go look some things up on that von Breikenrucker guy, and let's see what his uh, bank account looks like and who his friends are and what he, you know, what's he been up to. Give me the minimum, the minimum thing I would have to do for that sort of thing to, to, to draw the unwanted attention of your fusion center? It won't draw the attention of the fusion center because, as I said before, it is not operational. If you're asking me as a federal prosecutor what I can do as a federal prosecutor with the Joint Terrorism Task Force, I can answer it that way, but it really doesn't implicate the fusion center. The Attorney General's guidelines, which are in effect, require me to act in good faith and see that whether or not there's reasonable articulable suspicion of criminal conduct before I can take any action whatsoever. Actually, those were changed in December of 2008 to no longer require that. Well, I require it. Yeah. <laughs> but but I, I just make this observation. It's what I, my points were not aimed to attack any individual here. It's the larger fusion center um, issue and it's the collection of intelligence. And what he's explained about conspiracy, I don't have any objection to a conspiracy, a violation of the law. You can collect criminal justice information precisely to do that prosecution. And that's a straw man created to, like we just want to disarm and have the law only be backward looking. No, it's very forward looking and that's legitimate. And we have some guidelines as to what's material assistance. It's very broad and we don't object to that at all. And I'm not impugning anyone's personal motives, but I, I summon you to, again, these words of Louis Brandeis, is perhaps the greatest justice ever to sit on the United States Supreme Court. And he said that 
that uh, history teaches that we need to be most on our guard when government's purported motivation is benevolent because that is the time when you're likely to succumb and yield your liberties to men, he says, of well-meaning and zeal but without understanding. And that is what I suggest. All right, you're frightened. The whole purpose of having a civilized society is to overcome your fear and fright and to recognize that even though in the short run it looks like if you just do a shortcut, you just torture them now, then you can stop. And then, but then you find out that you can't stop. I also recall Madame Roland. Uh, she played a prominent feature in the French Revolution. Uh, then comes the reign of terror, and she's sent to the guillotine. And she writes, says, liberty, liberty, what crimes have been committed in thy name? And you just substitute national security. He talks about, well, no one's abused there. Well, he certainly hasn't talked to the people who are subject to torture, people who are suing because they have been brutalized and they confront the state secrets doctrine. You, you talk to Mahir Arar. Uh, there are human beings out there who have been victimized and hurt very substantially. It's not just an academic argument about whether or not we have the Stasi. I, I think I'll owe you a slightly better answer because I don't want to leave you with a false impression. Just because an organization calls itself the mom and apple pie organization doesn't begin and end the conversation, of course. Um, but the standard on reasonable articulate suspicion, which I believe is very valid, is not only important for the constitutional sense uh, of it, but also for the otherwise diminution of scarce resources. To go investigate you for any other reason would take our eye off the ball of the valid criminal enterprises that are out there. So it's, it's a dual reason. Beyond that, there are other standards about what we can do, and I, can, I won't bore you, but I can, I'll be glad to talk to you later about what really can be done. And can I just, uh, sure. if you don't mind, and I might take Dane's question and, and reframe it a little bit. Uh, when a, say, the Baltimore City Police call the Fusion Center and say, we have an investigation of Dane and his organization, can you please provide us the information? Do you do at the Fusion Center any investigation to determine whether the Baltimore City Police have a just investigation that, that followed the same sort, or do you just take on their word that, they say they have an investigation. The Fusion we'll Center wouldn't have information unless it was otherwise under the standard reasonable articulable suspicion. So anybody could call any police department and say, I want to know about his organization. If it's not a nexus to crime, the answer is going to be we have nothing. So the Fusion Center is not going to get into that kind of uh, situation, at least by design. But I don't know. They're not there, nor am I there in some context to police the police, although I, as I say that I know that I have a function in that regard, too. Right, because like the Maryland State Police, obviously, were investigating. And I was, and I gave testimony to Steve Sachs, who uh, represented the governor in the inquiry with regard to the Fusion Center and to the entire anti-terrorism setup. And if you read the report, you clearly see that the Fusion Center was in no way, shape, or form implicated. My friend from your organization, David Rokaw, admits as such because that's a fact. We were very candid. I called him as soon as I read it in the newspaper. So that's a different issue, although I understand the context of what Mr. Fine's discussing. It's part of the discussion. Right. And uh, I'm sorry. <laughs> this, uh, this doesn't happen this in court. Question. They don't get to ask me but, questions like but this. But if the Fusion Center is supposed to be the clearinghouse for all terrorism-related information right. and they didn't know about a two-year investigation one of their participants was dealing with, does that raise the opposite concern that this institution is not really effectively getting the information out to the other participants? Well, if you read the report, it really wasn't a terrorism investigation, point one. It was categorized on a wrongly by uh, an officer as a terrorism. Uh, but, it, but it was char ca characterized as a terrorism. They did. Uh, but I think it's uh, probably a credit to everybody. MCAC wasn't in contact because really they, 
even though they categorized it terrorism, the MSP, the Maryland State Police people, didn't think it was terrorism per se, and they never got into the terrorism realm, which is why I never knew about it, nor did the Fusion Center. Is exactly why you need it in the sunshine. These things happen all the time. Yeah, well, and with regard to reasonable and articulate suspicion, let me tell you about one of these fusion centers out in Missouri that issued a report. Again, it's leaked out. You know what they're gathering information on? Those who attended the rallies of Ron Paul and Bob Barr said, oh, there's a clear association between these right-wing terrorists and they support Ron Paul and Bob Barr for president. What the hell does that satisfy reasonable and articulable suspicion attending political rallies? It doesn't. Yeah. And and there's no sanctions against it. And people in the government don't stand up and say those people need to get fired because they're violating the Constitution. We can't trust them to honor their oath because they take an oath says I I I pledge under oath to affirm and uphold and defend the Constitution of the United States. And that kind of stuff is not in conformity with that oath. They need to be sanctioned if you're going to prevent this from happening again. If there's no sanctions, no one thinks it's real out there. And you cite a single instance where anyone has been sanctioned. Can I speak now? Okay. Uh, I think you need to check your facts. The person in Missouri was one lone individual that sent that out. wasn't even employed to do any analysis. I think it was an IT person. Has been, I don't know what happened exactly, whether it was reprimanded or fired. I'm not sure. But it didn't go unnoticed by anybody nor corrected. Um, once, mistake, once it was leaked, yeah. Okay. Actually, that was the Texas Fusion Center, John, the Missouri sorry, You're Fusion right. Center. It's the Texas Center. I apologize. All the way in the back. Edward Roeder from Sunshine Press. Uh, with the possible exception of comparing databases of those who take flying lessons and those who learn how to land a plane and take it off, can you cite some examples of information that's been gathered that would have identified the uh, 9-11 hijackers? I, 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 don't, I think the 9-11 Commission pretty much covered that. I'm not going to try and uh, say that I'm better than they. I think they, they did. I, I can give you a better example, sir. Uh, there's something called the Terrorist Screening Center that's now in operation where they're doing their darndest to combine all the numbers of watch lists that are out there. If you recall, not so ancient history, I believe it was September the 9th of 2001, Maryland State Police today tried to be maligned, but a trooper on the road stopped one of the 19 hijackers on the way to commit murder. Uh, No access to a watch list. In fact, the person wasn't watch listed, but let me make my point and see if it makes some sense to you. That person was ticketed and let go and obviously did what he intended to do. No fusion center, no watch list consolidation, no nothing. There's several lifts in this, but not necessarily out of, totally out of the realm of possibility, I would say. Now, if and it routinely happens now that persons are stopped by the Maryland State Police or other police forces, and they legitimately can go into the NCIC database that's been maintained for many, many years, pre-September 11, and they can find out if someone's on a watch list. So let's say that person is stopped today. What will happen today with the Fusion Center is a standard protocol in Maryland only. I can speak to Maryland only. That's my first admonition from before. The terror screening center will, con- will be contacted by the Fusion Center, who the cop, the police officer, the trooper will call the Fusion Center. They'll contact the terror screening center. They'll try and make sure they have the right individual to the best extent possible, while the trooper or the roadside officer stays there and protects his or her own safety and keeps her eye on the person they've stopped legitimately for speeding or whatever. 
That person may be told, don't say anything about the watch list, but try and find out where the guy's going because the JTF in New York wants to know. It happens all the time. If on September 9th there was such a system in place and that person was watch listed, two ifs, the system now is in place, but if it was watch listed, and he says, I'm heading for Newark International Airport to meet some friends. Thank you very much. That's reported in. And for the sake of argument, in New York, someone stopped and they say the same thing on watches heading to Newark. I guarantee you today the terror screening center and those fusion centers will be talking that two guys on the watch list are going to Newark International. It's at least a system that existed that did not exist before September 11th and certainly not on September 9th. Those are the kinds of things that we are looking for, I believe, totally legitimately, totally constitutionally. Michael? And I think, you know, that's actually a, a very good example to prove Bruce's point. Uh, there are 1.1 million separate identities on the terrorist screening center watch list. All right. That's bad enough. Right. I mean, I don't think there's anybody out there who would suspect that there's really 1.1 million terrorists running around. Thirty five percent error rate at a minimum. So we're talking hundreds of thousands of people improperly on the watch list. Not only that. The IG, this IG report just came out a month ago. Uh, there are people who are known terrorists, who the FBI is investigating with a terrorist investigation, who are not on the watch list. So the if Harvey threw out, if they were properly watch listed, it is, is quite questionable in the first place. In the second place, take the very same situation, you know, with, with the pulling over of, of the 9-11 hijacker who wasn't on a list. Well, chances are he wouldn't be on a list today. But also keep in mind, the NSA was listening to the 9-11 hijackers while they were in our country. You know, the CIA knew two of the al-Qaeda operatives had come to the United States. This is not a problem of the collection of information. It's a problem of the management of information. And that management problem is only increased when the volume of information collected is, is so, so much higher and, and the structures to manage the information, which, again, the government is relying on these data mining systems that now we know will not work. And that's really where the security is not actually being improved while our liberty and our privacy is being infringed. If I could just – I want to give one example. It's a personal one about how you can get on the watch list. I recently returned from Chennai, India. I was over there talking about the aftermath of the destruction of the Tamil Tigers, the Tamil civilians being massacred there by the government with a Francis Boyle. He's a professor out at University of Illinois, and he told me he's on the watch list. He's, he would come back one occasion from Malaysia. Uh, and the FBI there greets him on the tarmac, and they grab him, and they tell him, will you turn and be an informant against your clients who had been targets of a terrorism investigation? Will you be an informant against your clients? He said, no, I'm not going to do that. And he says, well, then you have to stay on the watch list. So that's the kind of way in which you can end up on the watch list, just like those who had been lawyers for anyone at Guantanamo Bay were told, well, what you're doing is treason. You shouldn't be defending these people. And that you can see how easy you can abuse the government authority to get on the watch list and stay there, say, 1.1 million terrorists. I mean, it's obviously that's a farcical number. Um, and I'm not – and I'm, again, I'm not trying to malign Maryland. We need to look at the global picture because that's what this discussion is about, the policy for the United States, not just the District of Maryland. But Maryland is trying – desperately to lead the way in a lot of areas to correct some deficiencies. Being one of the first fusion centers was one of our attempts to do so. There are many others in Maryland 
from the previous governor, the previous administration, and the current administration as a state, federal, and local entity. And Mike's situation about NSA overhears of some of the uh, murderers just indicates to me that the wall that was up prevented the information from flowing rapidly enough, and that hurt the investigative effort to find these people before they committed their mass murder. So, like almost arguments, there are two sides to them. Yeah, but that was taken care of in the Patriot Act. That's so you could just stop at the Patriot Act. You didn't need fusion centers because that ended the wall. Well, do you have to rationally information share? Okay, we have a question down here. Right down here, all the way down. <laughs> Exercise. Um, I'm Dan Fowler from uh, Congressional Quarterly, and uh, my question is uh, slightly obscure. Um, but the other day I was at a forum at the uh, American Institute for Contemporary German Studies, um, and uh, they talked about the similarities in homeland security policies between the U.S. and Germany. And the presenter specifically noted that both countries have fusion centers and that both could learn from each other with regard to fusion centers. And uh, my question is, uh, first of all, uh, are any of you familiar with fusion centers in Germany? Um, and if so, how are they similar? How are they different from those in the, in the U.S.? And if not, um, what can Germany learn from the U.S. Uh, in terms of fusion centers? Thank you. I, I have no idea what Germany has. I have a hard enough time knowing what Maryland's got. Uh, so I, I really, not trying to duck the question, I really can't respond in any way, shape, or form rationally or legitimately. Um, and I also don't know anything about Germany's system um, and would be interested in knowing whether theirs is just starting or whether theirs was something that probably should have informed our decisions as we develop this system. I mean, part, part of my concern is that we, when we published our first report, it was November of 2007, there were 42 fusion centers. Most people I went out and talked with around the country had never heard of a fusion center. Uh, by July, we put out a supplemental report. There were 58 fusion centers. Today, there are 70 fusion centers. So these things are rapidly expanding with no guidelines or very few guidelines. What guidelines are out there are voluntary uh, about what it is they should be collecting, what it is they should be doing with the information, and who they should be sharing it with. So we've built this system now that has been operating willy-nilly so that a north-central Texas fusion center can put out a product that you know, blames all the ills on D.C. lobbyists, which I'm sure there are a few here. And, uh, you know, Missouri puts out one that blames it on, on third-party candidates, and Virginia put out one that found everybody was a potential terrorist, and especially people who went to school, because, of course, schools are nodes of radicalization. Um, so, you know, I, I, I think it, it takes some real oversight of what is actually happening before we can even get to how, how to fix what's broken. You know, one, fusions, you know, one of the things we've got to keep in mind is, is fusion centers are, are a building or a room in a building. You know, it's really the intelligence activities that are taking place that we're concerned about. And, you know, gov governments have been involved in intelligence collection activities since there have been governments. So, you know, it's not just that we should look at things that are fusion centers. It's that we should look at all these previous state intelligence apparatuses and, you know, even our own. Look at COINTELPRO. You know, one of the things, you know, we, we all know the history of COINTELPRO and the civil rights violations. 
But what's interesting to me, having been an agent when I read it, uh, was how ineffective it was. They actually weren't effect effective at finding people who were actually engaged in violence on behalf of the movements that they were surveilling because it was this broad brush approach where people who espoused beliefs that the government uh, disagreed with or were concerned about became the focus of the investigation rather than the small minority of people who actually act out in a violent way to further that movement. So, you know, I think all that history is very important. And, and you know, with all due respect to Harvey, what that history shows is that these powers are used against immigrants. They're used against you know, political dissenters. They're used against people who are at the margins of society, and they're the ones who most need the protection of our legal system. Yeah. Uh, could I just make one observation? We put in the German Constitution after World War II. There are prohibitions even on using electronic surveillance. Then the Bader-Meinhof gang, it wasn't until decades later, precisely because they worried that we'll go back to a police state, Germany, the German law enforcement was very much restrained uh, by, and this is we wrote and enforced their constitution. And with regard to the politics here, you remember that the fusion centers, or maybe it wasn't the fusion center, maybe Department of Homeland Security was suggesting the veterans returning because they didn't have jobs were threats. They, they, there was a threat that they would return to terrorism. But the veterans had political clout, and they screamed and yelled and said this was an insult, and then Napolitano changes their mind. Well, not everybody has that same level of political clout as the veterans do, so they don't get the relief like they did. Yes, sir. I'm Al Golub, and my, my affiliations have little to, little to do with what, what we're talking about. Uh, beyond the virtue of fusion centers uh, and dealing with the, uh, the collection of information, uh, uh, Mr. Fine, you mentioned the McCarthy era. Suppose that McCarthy, indeed, and the 200 informants had come up uh, with actual perpetrators of seditious acts. How would that have changed history, and how would Senator McCarthy uh, been been perceived? One more. Uh, Bridget Gabriel, in a book she has recently written, titled They Must Be Stopped, literally would have us monitoring Islamic mosques and temples for the potential uh, menace that, uh, that these Islamists are to this country. Your reaction, please. Well, I think it was 208 is what Joe McCarthy began with, and then it kept changing because he didn't know the reliability, I guess, of his own files. But my answer is, if he had all this concrete evidence that made you know that they were right, you can get warrants. You can go ahead and arrest people on probable cause. You don't need proof beyond a reasonable doubt. What's the need to just have these blacklists in secret? Law enforcement accounts for that. No one's suggesting that we're going to rely on benevolence to prevent any kind of crime. So I think history would have taught, if you actually had the information, you'd have gone to the FBI and said, here's probable cause. These people are committing crimes against the United States. And remember how loose the criminal justice standard was. Remember the Dennis case. You know, conspiracy to overthrow the government of the United States because sometime in the year 20,280, you know, the, these communists will have buried themselves in the government and overthrown it. And that was the vision to get a conviction. So the criminal justice standard is not an insurpassable standard. So my answer is fine. He should have just gone to law enforcement rather than doing his blacklisting. Uh, rather than go into the McCarthy era, uh, let me just correct the standard of federal, the principles of federal prosecution, which 
I know it's been a while since you left the Justice Department, but it's been in existence for a very long time. I cannot and will not, no federal prosecutor, authorize an arrest merely because of probable cause. We do not, and Mike can substantiate this, being a former agent. Absent very exten- uh, extenuating circumstances or exigent circumstances, we must establish before we allow an arrest to go forward or an indictment to proceed that we not only have probable cause, which is the legal standard, which gets us over the liability hump, but we must assert and prove that we have admissible evidence that will prove guilt beyond a reasonable doubt. In other words, we can win. So it's not just go arrest them because they have, we have probable cause. We just don't do that absent exigent circumstances. Then you should have a 100 percent conviction rate because that's well, the standard the when you go to trial. What? It's in the 90 plus percentile, and it has been since I've been a prosecutor almost 30 years, so I guess we're pretty good. Well, I'm not sure that's what the accurate rate is. That, what is it on the terrorism prosecutions, 100 percent? Did Guantanamo Bay 100 percent detentions? Is that they right? They all go to the statistics and look them up. I stand by my statistics. You never make an error. Is that right? I didn't say that. <laughs> How many errors you make? <laughs> this morning, probably several. And uh, uh, I, I think the 90 percent includes guilty pleas. Yes, it does. Absolutely. But, because but at trial, at trial and, and I'll give the Department of Justice its due, it's usually over 80 percent. It hovers between 80 and 82 percent conviction at trial except in material support for terrorism cases, where it's at less than 50 percent. At trial. Many people plead guilty because they are guilty and they've been shown the evidence of guilt beyond a reasonable doubt. And, and here's the thing with material support. If you plead guilty after you've been charged with material support versus conviction at trial, the difference in your sentence is 84 months. As it is with most guilty pleas. If, if you go to trial, you have more than a 50 percent shot of getting off. And yet, why would you, you plead guilty? But what you're risking is 84 months in prison by going to trial. Okay. If I had a gavel up here, I would bang it. <laughs> That's why judges have them. We, we had three they lawyers have on the panel. Gavel. They all keep, want to keep going. I am afraid we've run out of time. Would you please thank our panelists for a good discussion? Everybody here is invited to the luncheon upstairs, and we can continue the discussion up there. Thanks a lot.